0: This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 11. Welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 11, The Rise of Reza Shah. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Navis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com, it is there that you can link to all of our platforms and we invite you to check out parts 1-10 through of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the contemporary history of Iran, part 11. Well, it is impossible to speak of the contemporary history of Iran without at some point spending some time focusing on the man who has been called the father and founder of modern Iran, Reza Shah Pahlavi. Indeed, Reza Shah's evolution from military leader to prime minister to king of Iran from 1925 to 1941 would see him presiding over a fundamental transformation of Iran and the centralization of the Iranian state. He can be credited with everything from unifying warring tribes to a national railroad, the Persianization of Iran, the suppression of the dominance of the clergy, women's rights and educational and judicial reform. But Reza Shah was also an autocrat who ruled with an iron will and by many accounts was deeply unpopular by the time he was effectively forced from the throne and into exile by the British in 1941. So who was this man who came from modest means and became Iran's powerful ruler and established the Pahlavi dynasty? And what led to his dramatic fall and the heartbreak of his final years in exile? We've decided to do this, The Rise and Fall of Reza Shah, in two parts on this series, with a featured guest who has quite literally recently written the book on this subject. Dr. Shal Bakhosh is an Iranian-American historian, author, and scholar. He is an expert in the history of modern Middle East with an interest in the history of Iran. Dr. Bahosh has been the Clarence J. Robinson Professor of History Emeritus at George Mason University since 1985. He was a Guggenheim Fellow and has held fellowships at the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and the National Humanities Center. He was born and raised in Iran, obtained his BA and MA from Harvard, and his doctorate from Oxford before beginning his academic career, Dr. Bachosh was also a journalist in Iran where he wrote for the Kahan newspaper. Dr. Bahash has published numerous articles in prestigious journals and newspapers such as the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Republic, the Times of London, the Financial Times, and The Economist. And he is the author of several acclaimed books including The Politics of Oil and Revolution in Iran, Iran, Monarchy, Bureaucracy, and Reform under the Qajars, 1858 to 1896, and The Reign of the Ayatollahs. His latest book is The Fall of Reza Shah, Shah, the abdication, exile, and death of modern Iran's founder, and right now, Dr. Shao Bakosh, joins me from Virginia today. Hello, sir. Hi, Jean. Good to hear from you. It is a great honor to get to do this with you in two parts, and I, I have very much enjoyed devouring your latest book on Reza Shah. Thank you for doing this. Of course. So as I said, Dr. Bacharach, we're gonna do this in two parts. In our first part today, we wanna deal with the rise of Reza Shah. And I wanna talk to you about how this one man was responsible for this transformation, as I said in the introduction of Iran. If you can, just to begin with, give me a very brief and general context before we get into the details. When we talk about transforming a country, it almost sounds like hyperbole, but it is true that the period from 1925 to 1941 under Reza Shah was one of dramatic change in Iran, yes?
1: Oh, yes. And when you compare the Iran that Reza Shah took over in 1921, and the iran Shah left in 1941 it was a very different country
0: you know we we think of monarchs and we inevitably at least someone of my generation i think of say the british monarchy and i think of long family dynasties and heirs to the throne uh there's a sense that each king or queen has really done little to earn their throne other than having the great fortune or misfortune, depending on your position of being born into a privileged family. But in the case of Reza Shah or formerly Reza Khan, there was no Pahlavi monarchy before him. He started this from scratch. How astounding is that in the context of history?
1: Well, this is very surprising. It doesn't happen very often that one uh, dynasty is overthrown and another dynasty takes over. Obviously, of course, Reza Shah, after staging a coup, first became military commander, then prime minister. And only then did uh, the Iranian parliament vote to abolish the former dynasty, the Qajars, and to uh, establish a new dynasty. Reza Shah chose the name Pahlavi for his dynasty, an ancient Iranian name and then ruled Iran for the next, what is it, from 1925 to 1941, for 16 years.
0: Can you paint a picture of this man? Reza Shah was born Reza Khan around 1876 into a family of very modest means. Who was he? Where did he grow up?
1: Well, Reza Shah was born in a village in the mountains of al above Tehran. He lost his father at a very early age and basically was raised by his mother and an uncle who helped bring him up. He had limited education, although the idea that he was illiterate is certainly wrong. Uh, He he read well and uh, liked to read newspapers and books on Iranian history. He served initially in the Cossack Brigade, a Russian-officered military force that was established in Iran in 1978 under the Qajars.
0: 1878, I assume, right?
1: 1878, I'm sorry. Uh, It it remained Russian-officered for a long time. Uh, Reza Shah proved himself very able from the beginning and rose quickly through the ranks. And uh, by the age of 40, he was the head of the Hamadan detachment in the Cossack Brigade.
0: How does he get involved in this Cossack Brigade?
1: His uncle was a member of the Cossack Brigade, and I would imagine it was his uncle who introduced him to the Cossack Brigade commanders who took him on.
0: You know one of the things that, um, given that he becomes such a visionary in terms of, um, depending on how you want to put it, dragging Iran into the twentieth century or uh, forming that centralized state, et cetera, the modernizing, whatever the word is, um, it's quite amazing that not only does he not have an extensive formal education, but you note later in the book uh, that this great modernizer actually never saw. It never experienced a European-style modern country that he wanted to model Iran after. In fact, the first time he would be in a place like that would be in his final years in exile in Johannesburg. That's, that's very interesting. What does it say about this man?
1: Well, it's interesting, yes, that he, he was touched by and caught on the ideas circulating around the intelligentsia in Iran. As a member of the Cossack Brigade, he did see how badly the military was treated by the Qajar dynasty, little pay, poorly clad soldiers, and the like. He also, having taken part in a number of campaigns to suppress tribal and other uprisings, uh, how ununified the country was. He realized the country was badly governed. And this desire um, grew up in him to make Iran strong, give it a strong central government, and to modernize it. And interestingly, too, he also caught the bug of nationalism, which on the whole was new to Iran beginning in the late 19th
0: century where where would he have caught that bug of nationalism
1: well it's hard to say really i think it probably was during his military service he developed a resentment of the fact that the cossack brigade was officered by russians by foreigners and as i say he seemed he uh, seemed to be very sensitive to and to have caught the ideas that were circulating not among the poorer classes but among the intelligentsia
0: it's remarkable to me that he you know he hasn't been to france he hasn't been to to england he hasn't been to the united states uh, and even russia and yet he he has this idea he has this notion of what he wants or what he wants to help iran become um he's also very ambitious and you say that from his time as a young officer in the in the Cossack brigade, uh, Reza Khan, as he was known then, had what you've described as a voracious appetite for accumulating wealth. How do we know that?
1: He obviously had been poor, like many Iranians from the countryside whose first experience was farming. He developed a particularly voracious appetite for land, and he wanted, I think, to make sure his family would be comfortable, and he must have seen wealth as a means both to power and to security. So from the moment he and a political collaborator, Said Zia, a dean, seized power, he began to accumulate wealth, first by seizing it or taking it from wealthy Iranians, and then as king, by accumulating land. By the time his reign ended, he was probably Iran's largest landlord. With properties in Iran's agriculture-lit, uh, rich uh, north, first of all, but really almost everywhere, he collected land and created an elaborate bureaucracy to handle it for him.
0: You you talk about him seizing power. What what was, again, his name at that point was Reza Khan. Reza Khan's role. In the coup of 1921, that would lead to the departure of Ahmad Shah, the last Shah of the Qajar dynasty.
1: Well, he, at some stage, uh, reformers uh, introduced Reza Shah and Sayyid Ziauddin Tabatabai, a journalist and politician who had ideas for reform and had, even before the coup of 1921, mixed with uh, diplomats and British officials. When World War I occurred, and then the Russian Revolution, the British became the dominant, not only political, but military outsider in Iran. They uh, persuaded the ruling Shah Ahmad Shah to get rid of the Russian officers of the brigade, and uh, British commanding officer in Iran, Lord General Ironside, quickly noticed Reza Shah as a, Reza Khan, I should say, as a uh, well rather outstanding officer. The only commitment that Ironside, who sensed that Reza Shah was thinking of staging a coup, um, the only commitment he wanted from Reza Shah before he pulled British troops out of Iran in 1921 was uh, that he would not attack British forces and that he would leave the Qajar dynasty in place. Um, Once uh, Ironside withdrew British troops from Iran, uh, this opened the door to uh, Reza Khan and his collaborator, Sheikh Zia,
0: to march on Tehran and stage their coup. And by the way, Reza Khan is not... He's not sitting in an armchair somewhere giving orders. Like he's actually a military man leading these these uh, advances himself, right?
1: Yes, he had uh, Ironside before he withdrew from Iran, persuaded Ahmad Shah to basically put the Cossack brigade in Reza Shah's hands.
0: You, you say at one point that those around Reza Khan they they saw him they identified his his raw talent and saw him as someone who could become president in a potential new republic Uh, this is in the early 1920s of course before he becomes uh, king and and that that is the path he ends up taking Uh, they're watching events in turkey and they see similar possibilities for iran what was the example that atatürk was setting that those around reza khan saw as a comparable
1: in in turkey atatürk a military officer uh, at the end of the following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in World War One, also took power and he abolished the sultanate the monarchy in Turkey and established a republic and then launched Turkey on a program of extensive reform uh, there were in Iran particularly among the intelligentsia and the political class, uh, a great admiration for what uh, Ataturk was doing in Turkey, and they thought Reza Khan, the man who had now had power in Iran, as the person to become a president rather than shah right. in Iran and carry out the same kind of reforms in Iran. Many of the reforms, in fact, that Reza, Shah, Reza Khan first and then Reza Shah undertook in Iran were very similar to those that had occurred and were occurring in Turkey.
0: So, so Reza Khan becomes Reza Shah the king, uh, uh, not the president. H- how does Reza Khan, the military strongman and then prime minister, become Reza Shah the king?
1: Uh, uh, after the coup in 1921, and um, even though his partner said Zia was the political figure in the Diamberet, uh, Reza Shah, very Reza Khan, I should say, at that stage, very quickly proved the more adept um, of the two, both as a politician and, of course, the man who had the power, the military, uh, in hand. He got rid of uh, Sezia, and then in time got rid of uh, Ahmad Shah. Ahmad Shah left Iran two years after the 1921 coup, and he really never returned. So initially there was talk of establishing a republic in Iran. And uh, Reza Khan himself, it appears, was taken by the idea. But the clergy in Iran were strongly opposed, um, in large part because um, Ataturk leading a republic in neighboring Turkey was also strongly secularizing and weakening the clergy. In fact, he abolished the caliphate and uh, set about secularizing Turkish society. They did not want uh, a similar pattern in Iran, so they strongly opposed uh, the establishment of a republic. Uh, Reza Khan met with the clerical leaders in the holy city of Qom, and when he came out of his meeting with the clerical leaders, He asked his followers to uh, drop all talk of a republic. Uh, With the idea of a republic uh, no longer on the table, the movement began to have Reza Shah declared king, which occurred uh, when uh, parliament and then a constituent assembly abolished the Qajar dynasty, and established uh, the monarchy, invested the monarchy in uh, the new dynasty, Pahlavi, uh, led by Reza Shah now.
0: What a fascinating and paradoxical twist that it is the clergy that ends up enabling the establishment of a new monarchy that they will thereafter oppose.
1: Uh, (laughs) Indeed, because Reza Shah once Fully in power, also launched a campaign of secularization in Iran, and uh, went after, tried to break the power of the clergy in Iran.
0: Just before we leave his uh, years, his pre-monarchy years. How, just on a personal level, how how important do you believe that Reza Shah's military background? was in him co-opting power and becoming uh, the Shah Pahlavi, Reza Shah?
1: Well, of course, uh, he had power. I mean, as the head of the Cossack Brigade and what military force there was in Iran, that was very important. But really, it also was his, his own leadership qualities. And he very quickly established himself, as the leader and the most powerful man in the new government, the new establishment. And uh, I suppose his military background and to a certain degree, unfortunately, the example of Russian officers who had commanded the Cossack Brigade, a certain tendency towards autocracy Uh, leading by dictates from above, was a characteristic of Reza Shah.
0: So he, uh, he becomes Reza Shah, and he promptly begins the path towards, effectively for the first time, a centralized state in Iran, which is quite remarkable. One of the reasons it's remarkable is, from what I understand, Iran up until this point is a series of, is a collection of, disunified and warring tribes. How challenging was it to try to unify and or undermine the tribal culture of Iran?
1: Well, it was a big challenge. Uh, now, I wouldn't say tribal wars, but the, in their own regions, the different large tribes of Iran, the Qashqai, the Bakhtiari, were quasi-independent and Uh, not really under government control. The political class was weak and divided. There were, for example, before the rise of Reza Khan, six cabinets in a matter of just 19 months. The corruption was very widespread. Um, Ahmad Shah, the last Qajar ruler, accepted, demanded actually, British payments to appoint as prime minister a politician the British favored and then demanded payments to sign the Anglo-Persian agreement uh, into which details we won't go. But again, an agreement the British wanted very much. But here was a king willing to accept bribes and a subsidy from a foreign government to do what they wished, rather than what was at the interest of the country. Uh, The politicians were also corrupt, and even the uh, officers of such military force as existed pocketed a lot of the pay of the common soldiers. So yes, Iran was decentralized. The political class and the government as a whole were corrupt. The government was very weak. Uh, for example, during World War I, Russia and then the Soviet Union, the British and the Ottomans all used Iranian territory to carry out their war aims. During the war to protect its interests, the British established three separate military forces in different parts of Iran. Uh, So the Iran that Reza Khan, Reza Shah, took over was basically very weak, uh, decentralized with a central government that had little control over the
0: country as a whole and he i mean some of what you what you write in the book almost um, plays out like a movie i mean when there's to to bring on a, the, this, a couple of the final tribes that you know are not yet on board i mean reza shah Reza Han, Reza Shah, uh, literally rides into town. I mean, it says, "Okay, you know, uh, 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 you know, with military might, it says you're joining, right? I mean, the, you you're you, you're going to become part of this unified country."
1: Rides into town is a very good way of putting it. Uh, in in the south, in the province of Khuzestan, the uh, most powerful tribal chief was Sheikh Hazal the head of the Arab tribes in that region. And he had practically an independent government in the south. He had a separate agreement, a secret one with the British government, uh, who pledged to support him. And he, Reza Khan uh, marched his troops, led them into Khuzestan and forced... Uh, Sheikh Hazal to surrender. So, yes, I mean, it was a series of military campaigns that uh, brought tribal autonomy under control and tamed the tribes.
0: Again, it's quite fascinating that he is he's both the, the military leader and the king. Uh, he's he's not the king giving the orders to the general. Uh, and and that's no doubt what is part of the, the secret sauce that makes him the most powerful man in Iran for almost two decades. Uh, when we talk about centralization of uh, the state, um, there's so many examples of this, but it, let me just pick one and, and ask you to talk about it. How did, for example, establishing a national railroad and and roadway change the Iranian economy?
1: Well, let us first say the establishment of a railroad was a dream of of reformers ever since the 19th century. But it was a aspiration that never was realized until uh, Reza Shah. And he managed to build a railroad north to south, right across the entire country, and to do so with uh, domestic funds alone. He hated the idea of foreign loans. Um, uh, The railway was a marvel of an engineering project uh, because there were many difficult parts of the country through which the rail line had to pass. But he did that, and of course the railroad once established became an important way of linking uh, many parts of the country together, of facilitating trade and the movement of goods and people uh, between cities and towns. Uh, It remained, of course, one of the accomplishments in which Reza Shah himself took
0: great pride you know whether it's the, 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 the he's he's doing these things on a practical level or overseeing the railroad the changes to the judiciary the education system uh, but then he's also keenly interested in uh larger symbols and um persian identity the persianization of I- iran uh let me ask you about that i mean first of all how, how effective was the changing of Arabic names of cities and towns to Persian ones? And what was the reasoning behind that?
1: Well, again, you know, it's one of the striking qualities of Reza Shah that he picked up on this idea of Iranian nationalism and making Iran, of, of, as, you, as you said, Persianization of the country. There were many Arabic place names across the country. Uh, There were many Arabic words in the Persian language. And Reza Shah went about systematically changing all that. An academy was created to, in fact, to find Persian equivalents of Arabic terms and words in the Iranian language. Arabic names across the country were changed to Iranian ones. And the Iranian past was glorified. Uh, Reza Shah and his lieutenants picked on the period, not of Islamic greatness, but of the period, the pre-Islamic period of Iranian greatness. That is the period under the uh, Achaemenids. In the history books, in, in the schools, this history was emphasized and taught. Reza Shah was also a great patron of a revival of Persian art and uh, the task of archaeology of per- Iran's ancient sites. So in many ways, yes. I mean, the Iranian identity... Uh, of Iranians was emphasized. I didn't also mention, of course, the imposition of a uniform dress on the country.
0: Oh, well, let me get to that. <laughs> yes. That's a that's a whole other thing I have to ask you about. But but when you say the reviving of symbols, I, he I mean he led the revival of Persepolis, right?
1: Yes, very much so. He patronized and sponsored the dig at Persepolis. Uh, he brought foreign archaeologists to help in this task. Uh, yes, very much so. Dr. Brekhaz, uh,
0: you, you, you touched on this earlier, but can you just go into detail of why he chose the Pahlavi name?
1: Pahlavi was the name of a referred to a, to a language that was common in, in Iran in, in pre-Islamic times. Uh, So again, yes, as you suggest, the name of the dynasty itself went back to uh, the period of Iranian greatness and the period before Islam. And by the way, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in detail later. Part of the, as it were, Persianization project was to weaken the clergy and the impact of Islam on Iran.
0: Well, I was just going to say, how did this Persianization go over with the clergy? I'm I'm assuming it wasn't so popular.
1: It wasn't because it affected them as well. For example, the clergy were the the principal vehicle for the education of children. And he established a uh, network of public schools throughout the country at the primary and secondary level. And these schools taught not Arabic, but Farsi, the Persian language, emphasized not the history of Iran under Islam, but the history of Iran before Islam. He established schools for women, for girls, as well as boys. And again, this went against the, uh, shall we say, the instincts of the, clergy, and of course the most dramatic uh, anti-clerical move, as it turned out to be, was the abolition of the veil, which all Iranian women uh, wore in public places.
0: Yeah, so let me get into that, the dress codes. Um, This has always struck me as... As quite bizarre as as a kid who grew up in the West that, that the mandatory dress codes. Can, can you explain it, from Reza Shah's perspective, at least, what was the goal of so-called sartorial uniformity?
1: Yes, which is a lovely phrase used by another uh, historian. Uh, first of all, I want to continue to emphasize it was not Reza Shah alone, but the men he gathered around him who were the as it were the source for many of these ideas, but he embraced and adopted them. But in Iran at that time, first of all, the tribes all had uh, their own uh, style and and traditions of dress, their own headdress. And headdress was a means by which uh, the... uh, Members of the the tribes and clans and even Iranians living in different parts of the country distinguish themselves from one another, which is a form of identity. So the imposition of sartorial uniformity was at least seen as a way of uh, bringing all Iranians together, of erasing these differences between tribe and uh, urban dweller between different parts of the country it was uh, so first of all there was a the adoption of a what was came to be called the Pahlavi uh, hat which was a peaked cap that was common in France so all Iranians were required to wear the Pahlavi hats.
0: Is this the fedora, the 1935 fedora, or is that a different hat? Well, well, no, then in
1: 1935, uh, there there was imposed on men anyway. Uh uh, uh, The fedora hats, the Western Uh, fedora hats.
0: What is, what's the purpose of the hat? I don't, (laughs) I don't understand. I mean, it's very nice, but why, why make that mandatory? Well,
1: I think uh, to copy the phrase used by another historian, uh, there was an attempt not only to establish, to impose sartorial uniformity, but sartorial modernity.
0: Ah.
1: And so the idea was to adopt um, a Western form of headdress. And behind that idea was a rather simplistic idea, which is if Iranians dress, as people did in the West, uh, in Europe, uh, then this would somehow advance the project of modernization. The imposition of the fedora hat proved the last straw for the clergy, and uh, they began to preach against it. And in fact, in mosque in Mashhad, uh, after preaching by a, clergymen against the Hath. There were actually riots, and the police moved in. Many people were killed. So it led to violence, this attempt at sartorial westernization.
0: Right. And it's not just the clergy, I mean, so there's a, to to put a fine point on it, there's a 1929 policy mandating that men wear European suits, then in 1935, the fedoras for men, and of course, uh, in the mid-30s, the the mandatory removal of the hijab that you spoke about, the uh, headdress for for women, Um, and this leads to you know having said that all we've all you've described about the the remarkable feats of of uh, Reza Shah in power, this leads to I suppose the other side of Reza Shah which is his impetus or um, desire or perhaps a resignation at uh, needing to reign with an iron will, an iron force. Um, just on this point itself, and I, I should say we're probably going to do a whole other episode on the hijab issue because it's it's big enough in, in, in its symbolism and what it meant and what it didn't mean at that time. Um, but why did he feel, why would he feel that uh, he needs to be so ironclad about this? And would he not see, or those around him, those intelligent uh, men in his circle, etc., not see that this was going to start to create the winds of popular dissent?
1: I don't suppose he saw it. He was shaped by his military background and experience. He had inherited a country that was so divided and uh, weak that he felt that only by an iron will he could uh, centralize and r- reform it. A, a certain amount of, what shall we say, pressure from above, which probably was necessary. But yes, I mean, as he continued in his reign, he became more dictatorial, more intolerant of dissent or disagreement, more determined to impose his will by force, if necessary. So, yes, I mean, we've been talking about the positive things Reza Reza Shah did. But on the other side of the scale was this tendency towards autocratic rule and even dictatorial rule and uh, the, the legacy he left behind. Was the absence of political institutions like political parties uh, or trade unions, or politicians with an independent cast of mind?
0: Let me get to that. Let me get to that. The, the the democratic institutions. Just on the on this notion of the man himself. I mean, at one point you describe him as an imperious leader with a ferocious temper. Um, what what have you learned about what he was like to deal with?
1: Well, he really was very intolerant of dissent or disagreement. Uh, increasingly over the years, his ministers and lieutenants were, to put it simply, afraid of him. As one uh, diplomat described it, uh, many of his ministers left uh, meetings with him quaking in fear. And uh, he was not beyond beating his ministers. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, you know, and even officers in the army. And so, uh, really, to that extent, he became Im- imperial
0: and uh, dictatorial. You actually, uh, Dr. Bajos, you, you have a, a whole section. That you outline, I have to say, with some shocking detail, the fate of almost all of Reza Shah's ministers and top Iranian politicians and leaders throughout his reign. Most of them jailed, or deposed, or even killed. <laughs> can you? Can you? I mean, when you read it all in one, one go, it's quite shocking. Can you um, cite a couple of examples of those people?
1: Well, for example, uh, his uh, minister of justice, Davar was responsible for all the, for the codification of the laws and the introduction of very modern civil service codes, judicial codes, committed suicide. Many think because of fear of incurring Reza Shah's disappointment. His minister of court, Temur who became the really after Reza Shah, the most powerful man in Iran. He conducted all of Reza Shah's major negotiations with foreign governments. He sat in on cabinet meetings. Um, He was the intermediary between the Shah and the Shah's ministers, was thrown into jail, allegedly because of corruption, but because Enemies began to whisper in Reza Shah's ear um, about Demurtash's ambitions and uh, aroused his suspicions. Uh, he was, uh, in any case, he was jailed, and he died in prison. Many think by poisoning.
0: Wow! So there's this study in contrasts again. This, this. Um, leader who is progressive on the one hand with the quest for modernization and building Iran's global status and doing so, but then also an autocrat who is suppressing dissent, ruling with an iron will. Would you go so far as to say he was a dictator?
1: I think he came very close to being a dictator, yes, because by the end of his reign there really was no power other than the Shah in Iran. And as I said earlier, the unhappy wages of this is that he didn't leave behind any legacy for uh, an independent politics in Iran. If you compare again to Ataturk in Turkey, Uh, After Ataturk passed away, there was in Turkey political parties, the possibility of an independent press, of a politics inside the country. Uh, In Iran, there was not. And really, it was a legacy that has been hard to shake off even today.
0: (laughs) Yes, and it's a difficult one. I I kind of want to ask you where you where you come where where you stand at the end of doing all the research and 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 writing that you've done when you look at this legacy of a man who transforms or helps to transform iran in so many significant ways um, but then, as you say, doesn't leave the infrastructure of democratic institutions that can, that can uh, lead to a modernized democratic country. Um, so, how do you uh, assess? I mean, in, in part two of this, we're going to talk about his the fall of Reza Shah um, and his final years in exile. But before we get to that, I mean, how do you assess or look at his um, his legacy? Then yourself.
1: Well, your question itself. Uh, reflects the mixed feelings I have about Reza Shah. On the one hand, uh, I admire him for what he accomplished, uh, building up a modern state, creating Iran's judicial system, its army, its system of education, above all, the liberation of women, freeing Iran from foreign tutelage and interference, which we haven't. Talks about. On the other hand, there was this autocratic side to him which denied the country uh, the possibility of democratic institutions such as strong political parties, independent-minded politicians, a democratic cast of mind. After all, you don't need only political parties and parliaments and so forth. You need a people who have absorbed the idea of freedom and democracy and certainly Reza Shah did not leave that behind.
0: As I say when we, in part two, when we talk about the fall of uh, Reza Shah, there are external reasons why Reza Shah uh, ends up abdicating the throne, of course, the, the World War Two and the, the British and the Russians, and we're going to get into that. But in terms of what he did and how his actions would create the conditions where he wouldn't have the support or popularity or counsel of those around him it seems that there's there's two options to a certain extent there's there's one that says he he was so progressive that his rapid attempts at modernization it was too much too soon, and and that he, there, there it was just too difficult to, when you add up all the the forces that, like the clergy or others that he had to deal with that that um, it was a monstrous task. The other being that um, he ruled with too much of an iron hand, and when he loses those around him, uh, and and the inability of anybody to stand up to him, he he loses the counsel of those, and and his ability to really have any perspective on on ruling. What do you think of of the conditions that he created, notwithstanding the outside conditions that would lead to him uh, giving up the throne, the conditions that he created for his own fall?
1: Well, he certainly wasn't popular at the end of his reign the way he might have been at the beginning of his reign. Um, And he didn't have the public support that might have prevented foreign powers of engineering his abdication. Uh, but I'm, I'm not so sure that without the invasion of Iran by the allied powers during World War II and the role that uh, particularly Britain and the Soviet Union played, that his abdication would have taken place in normal circumstances so really is his abdication we're not talking about his popularity now but his abdication was uh, the product mostly of foreign um, intervention in iran and world war ii rather than an internal uprising or internal action
0: That's a perfect segue before we get to uh, part two. And before I end off on part one, a final question, actually a question with two parts, a micro and a macro part. The micro part being, uh, it's amazing to me that you were, I mean, it's a a great fortune to to be able to talk to you because you were actually born in Iran while Reza Shah was still in power. Um, And I wonder if you have any memories as a kid of um, what your impression of Reza Shah would be, uh, even even in the years after he left?
1: And none. I was much too young. Ah. <laughs> okay. But, 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 but uh, uh, our house in Tehran was on the main avenue uh, that led uh, also to the routes from the north. And uh, I remember distinctly as a five-year-old watching the russians marching into tehran during the allied occupation of iran in uh 1941. wow so i i do remember the, the tanks and the trucks passing by our house uh, as the russians occupied along with the british the capital
0: and i guess the macro part of my final question for this part uh, there's there's been an interesting resuscitation, maybe or celebration of Reza Shah more recently. Uh, I, I can't speak to exactly what's happening in Iran these days, but I can certainly say in the diaspora there are, there's a great fondness for him in many parts of the of the diaspora. Uh, um, does that surprise you?
1: Um, it does. I mean, interesting. Interesting enough, um, under the rule of the clergy in the Islamic Republic, there is suddenly great nostalgia for Reza Shah. And uh, during uh, anti-government demonstrations, I think it was last year, uh, a bit longer ago, um, the demonstrators actually cried out the name of Reza Shah and said, may God preserve you or preserve your memory. So yes, uh, there is a nostalgia for uh, at least his secular rule.
0: Dr. Shal Bahosh, I thank you so much for this, and I look forward to part two. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye.
0: Dr. Shal Bahosh is an Iranian-American historian, author, and scholar, and the Clarence J. Robinson Professor of History Emeritus at George Mason University. His latest book is entitled, The Fall of Reza Shah, The Abdication, Exile, and Death of Modern Iran's Founder. We reached Dr. Shal Bakhosh in Virginia today. This is full-time for the Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 11, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC. On Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. Our website rookmedia.com where you can also inquire about being a sponsor. Thanks to the team who make Rook Media happen. Susan, Anahita, Patty Sa, Ponta, Keon, Roham, Mehrdad, Reza and Shia. And thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizo Machine.